Good afternoon. Thanks for coming out in the cold weather. So there. If anybody forgot we were living in New York, we were reminded. I was, getting, I was sitting in the cab and we actually saw snowdrops. So there, snowflakes. Um, the covered Pesach. Anyway, we'll take it now. First of all, the shir is dedicated to two people. The first is a yard site. Um, for Chana Bas Yosef Hakoyen, her last name is Dreilichinger, Dreilichinger, okay, want me to answer your name too? It's dedicated by her daughter, Margaret Banks, thank you very much. And the second dedication is Lilanishmas Pesha Bas Arav Yeshua, first of all, the yard site is Chana Bas Yosef Hakoyen, the is the 8th of Nisan, this is the third yard site. And the second dedication is to Pesha, uh, for Pesha Bas Harav Yeshua Zev, whose yard site is today, Chavtes Adabez, Taker Tafshimun Hay. Okay, this is, as far as I know, our last Shmuel, so our last get together before Pesach. So, um, we'll talk a little bit about Pesach and Hashem. But before we get to Pesach, let me just reiterate some of the things that I mentioned last week. It's a little bit closer to the time. Tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh Nissen, as you probably all know. And Nissen always has one day Rosh Chodesh. I mentioned to you a while back that Adir always has two days of Shkedish. And if there's two others, both others have two days of Shkedish. Nissen always has one day of Shkedish. And there's significance to this. I'm not sure I know the significance, but there's significance to everything. Why there's one day of Shkedish and two days of Shkedish. Nissen always has one day of Shkedish. And um, it's a very important day. Aleph Nissen is a very important day for various reasons. For certain things, it's called Rosh Hashanah. The Mishnah says that there are four days of the year that are called Reish Hashanah. We all know that all of Tishrei, the first day of Tishrei is Reish Hashanah, but there are other Reish Hashanahs. Right? Like people know that Tuba Shvat or Reish Chedish Shvat is called Reish Hashanah Le'ilam. Reish Hashanah for, for trees, that's when they're reborn, that's when they um, come out of, I guess, what you would call hibernation. And there's also Reish Chedish Nisman, there's also Reish Hashanah for various different things. And amongst them, it's of course Reish Hashanah for the Yom Tevim, the first Yom that you didn't have of the three Mayedim, of the three Regalim, is Pesach. So though the new year, as far as judgment is concerned, and regarding various different things is Tishrei, but as far as Mayedim are concerned, Pesach and Shchedesh Nisan is, is the beginning of the year. Um, also, as I mentioned to you, Shchedesh Nisan is the Bayer Mashmini, which we read about last Shabbos in Shul, that... Klai Yisrael built the Mishkan and Hashem didn't allow them to erect it. Hanukkah, He made them wait till the end of Adir and as we discussed last week, the last week of Adir is a week of Chinuch, of preparing the Mishkan. And tomorrow, Chedesh Nisan was the day that the Beis HaMikdash was finalized or was, was initiated once and for all. And the way it's described in the Chumash, in the Torah, that on that occasion, Chedesh Nisan, there was Hashraf HaShchina. Hashem, so to speak, moved into the house. For a week, Hashem's home was built, and the Abishah was being provided with all of his needs, as we articulated last week, with his food, and with his psalmim, and with his alagutazachim. But the Daya, the one who was supposed to live in the home, was not present. Hashem Isbarach didn't live there. Until Rosh Nisan, which is tomorrow, and then on that day, Hashem Isbarach moved into his home. And it says in Rashi from Chazal, from Seder Elam, that a whole bunch of wonderful things happened, Rosh Nisan. 
Amongst them, it's it's Rishon Lenisim. That means, as I mentioned to you, that for the first 12 days of Nisan, each of the 12 Nisim, each of the 12 princes of the, of the various Shvatim, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zvulun, and then Reuben, Shimon, God, Menashe, Ephraim, Benyamin, and so on, brought Karbanis. And like we explained, that the reason the Nisim were in such a rush to be Machanech, to inaugurate the Beis HaMikdash, is because they had failed to be Mishtatif satisfactorily in the building of the Mishkan originally, and the basis for that mistake was that they underestimated they didn't calculate correctly the, the generosity, the nadvanus of Klai Yisrael, so they were left with nothing to give. So when the Mishkan was built, they ran right away and they brought Karbanus. And the first carbon was brought tomorrow, the Shchidish Nisan. So it was a day with a lot of activities, a lot of very interesting different events occurred, the Shchidish Nisan, which is tomorrow. And as you know, we don't say Tachnan the whole Nisan, and one of the reasons we don't say Tachnan the whole month is because since the majority of the month is a Yomtif, the first 12 days are a Yomtif because each of the 12 Nisim, when you bring a carbon, it's a Yomtif. And then, of course, you have Pesach, and Ere Pesach is a Yomtif, so we don't say Tachnan the whole Chodesh. But in addition, there was not such a exciting event that also happened tomorrow and that was the historicals the passing away of another of that um, it says in the Chumash that um, when Aaron Akain and his children were inaugurating the Mishkan and Hashem, so to speak, moved into his home, so they offered up interns, which they were not instructed to do, and then they passed away. And of course, it says in Svarim that Nadavanavi's Aveda was not literally that they violated the Ratznai, and they went against what it says in the Ibish Distrito, what Hashem wanted. But rather because Nadav and Avi who wanted to experience what's called Kalesa Nefesh. Kalesa Nefesh means when the Neshama leaves this world and goes back to the Mavish, goes back to Hashem. Nadav and Avi were very big tzaddikim. And the Kshtadis that they offered up resulted in a Kalesa Nefesh, in, in their expiring, in their, their passing away. And the Rechaim HaKadosh, of course, explains it this way. So, what's wrong with Avodos Hashem and the Derech of Kalesa Nefesh? If it's true that Nadav and Avi away because they rose up to a higher level. What's the Aveda? The answer is It's very wonderful to be close to Hashem but Hashem wants that the Neshama should be Baguf. The Neshama should be in the body and it should be healthy and it should serve Hashem within the framework of the physical world rather than what Nadav and undertook which was so to speak to run away from the world to separate themselves from the world. But in any event, there's a little bit on the time. Tomorrow's the Shredish Nissen that is connected to last week's Pasha and so on. There's another thought that I want to mention, and I'll try not to spend too much time on this, but I, last year I spent the whole one of the classes, an entire 45 minutes on this. I just, I'm compelled to mention this because, I, because I'm compelled to mention it. What can I tell you? <laughs> um, in the middle of last week's Pasha, in other words, the second half of Shmini, and then it continues this week. This week is called Pasha's Tazriya. And it begins with the halachas of a Yeladis, of a woman who gives birth, that she has to bring karbanas. And by the way, just to mention, one of the karbanas that a woman brings when she has children is a karmachatas. Is a sin offering. <laughs> Having children is one of the greatest mitzvahs in the Torah. What's the Aveda that just being called Machata? So, the, 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 what people say, I don't know, I'm sure there are deeper reasons, but the Veltzak, when a woman goes through the pains of labor, she swears she's never going to have another child. And of course, she has more children, so this is the Kod Machatas. But the Pasha begins with the. the um, 
the halachas of Ayeldas, the Tumah, the days of Taran, days of Tumah, and so on, the bulk of the Pashas Tazri, which is a pretty short Sedra, by the way, I think it has 64 Psukim, it's a relatively short Sedra, is the laws of Tzaras. Of Tzaras, of leprosy, which the Rambam says was an unusual thing. It was not, he doesn't say it about, about, uh, about Tzaras of the flesh, but about the Tzaras of clothing and of, of homes. He says that it was a pillow, it was a, not, a, not a natural thing that Hashem brought to itself for various different reasons. And next week again, we have all these halachas about Tzaras, let me say Pashas Metzeda. We read all the halachas of Tum and Next week, you have Nida, you have Kedi, you have Zav, you have Zava. In other words, from the middle of Shmini till Tazriya, these two and a half parashas talk about all the halachas of Tum and Tahara. The point that I want to mention is this. We, when we speak in convention, as mentioned in the Vishen Ziyach, when people commonly speak, what word do we use to allude to something that you're not allowed to eat? It's not the right word. Treif means something very specific. Treif means an animal that was killed, either often fell, the wild animal killed it, or it was gishachten, it was slaughtered, and it turned out to be non-kosher for various reasons. That's when you use the terminology at treifer. The right word for food that you're not allowed to eat is tummy. A non-kosher animal, the treif is called tummy. It's not called treif, it's called tummy. And the, 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 the criteria for kosher and non-kosher in the Torah terms is tired and tummy. You're allowed to eat a tired animal and you're allowed to eat a tummy animal. You're not allowed to eat a tummy animal. So I just want to make a simple observation. The cloud when it comes to Avodah Hashem, and we're talking specifically about kashtas, if we would sometimes think about what the Torah says about these various different parts of our Yiddishkeit, it would qualify, it would make doing what we need to do and not doing what we're not allowed to do meaningful, richer, and if you will, even easier. When you say something is treif, the connotation is, I'm not allowed to eat it. When you say something is tummy, the connotation is, I don't want to eat this. Think about it. We all want to be pure. And the, you know, as we've explained in the past, the Ibish they gave mitzvahs to Goyim also. Sheva mitzvahs b'nei noyach are mitzvahs on Goyim. But there's a fundamental difference between the mitzvahs that Hashem gave Lahavad Lagoy and the mitzvahs that the Ebishta gave Kal Yisrael. The difference is that the mitzvahs that Hashem gave Goyim is that they should be what the world calls a good person. Like the post I quoted earlier, If people are not going to have law and order, if people are not going to live morally, then people will literally swallow one another up alive. So therefore it's beneficial, it's, it's right, it's logical, it's human to have values, priorities, morals, right, wrong, that create a society that's that's normal, rather than chaotic, rather than toyu. When it comes to Torah and Yiddishkeit, the commandments that Hashem gives Yidn, it's not just to be good people. But like it says back in the last psukim of last week's Pasha, the Yistadishtem, the Yisem, Kedoshim, Kikodeshani, which means that the Yiddish that comes to call Yisrael and says, it's not enough that you be good. You need to also be pure, and you even need to be holy, which is an even higher madregya. Tahara, purity is one level, and holiness is an even higher madregya. In other words, there are things in Yiddishkeit that have to do with good and bad. Good and bad, we all understand. Mahatma Goy understands good and bad also. 
Then there are things in Yiddishkeit that don't have to do with good and bad, they have to do with pure and impure. We don't necessarily have such a hush in pure and impure. To appreciate what it means that something is pure or something is impure is an unusual thing. I'm reminded, I remember as a kid, everybody heard of him, and some of you may have met him or seen him, whatever it was. The Rebbe would not shake your hand if you were not in mikveh. But he didn't ask you. He wouldn't shake your hand if you didn't go to the mikveh. But he didn't ask you, he knew. And there would be 20 people standing in a line and they'd walk up to him one at a time and he would shake the hands of those who were in the mikveh and he wouldn't shake, and he never made a mistake. Is that pella? That's the type, achush in tahara and tumah. And I'm sure a person doesn't go to mikveh is not necessarily tummy, but mikveh makes you more pure. We don't have that kind of sensitivity. We all understand what right and wrong means. Stealing is wrong, lying is wrong, cheating is wrong, not following a system of law and order is wrong. But not being pure, it's a different kind of chush. And this is why when it comes to those aspects of Yiddishkeit, which are a little bit higher, more difficult for us to understand, some of us find it more difficult. Because it doesn't make sense. What's, why is this not kosher and this yeah kosher? Like Rashi says, the difference between shachat chatzia shalkana, rubei shalkana, a person shachts an animal. So there's a kana, there's a windpipe that he has to sever. So if he shachts half of the windpipe, the animals are treif. If he shachts a millimeter more or a, quarter, a small fraction more than half, it's kosher. Why? This is tame and this is tahe. This is considered unclean and this is considered clean. I don't know the difference. In Hanami you don't know the difference because we, we are who we are. But Torah is telling us the MS that notwithstanding, we're not sensitive to it, on a little bit of a level higher than what we're perhaps able to understand and experience and feel, this is Torah and this is tummy. And Hashem comes to Eden and He says it's not enough to be good and not bad. You have to be pure and not impure. And moreover, under certain conditions, certain times of the year, pure is not enough either. You have to be holy and not unholy. Like Rashi says, okay, that a whole year is not so terrible if you don't have a higher standard. But when you go to the Beis HaMikdash, you have to have an even higher standard. The point is that Torah does not only expect the Yid to be good to the extent that the person understands. Reveals to you that there are levels of goodness that we're not sensitive to. We don't feel because we're not tzaddikim. And the Torah tells us behave in a pure way whether you experience the difference between pure and impure or you don't experience the difference between pure and impure. So, what I want to say by way of observation is this. We each time we said this is not kosher, this is not tre- this is treif, we would say this is tummy. It would become a lot easier to appreciate why we don't eat it. You know, when we talk about standards and kashas, and we're coming to Pesach, and Pesach the mini Yisrael Tehidi that we're all meshuga. As Pesach stelt my vekov and tish medalanknisht. Pesach, everybody has their own hidurim, their own shagasen, and one of the most widely accepted hidurim is you don't eat anybody else's home. I remember we once made a bris Pesach. My, 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 my sister had a baby on Pesach. We had to get a minion to bench. Someone doesn't trust you. So people did us a favor. They washed and ate a kazayis matzah. They wouldn't eat anything else. So it says in, in its sport that Pesach, you put food down on the table. I mean, what do you eat on Pesach? Whatever it is. That nuts and oranges. Um, but you don't hand it to the person. In other words, you don't put the person in a position of 
of discomfort. You allow the person to decide whether they want to eat or they don't want to eat. So when it comes to Kashrus and Pesach, everybody is very fanatic. But sometimes we wonder, why do we have to do this? Or why do we have to higher standard of Kashrus rather than a lower standard of Kashrus? What's the difference? This is okay too. If you think of it, not in terms of kosher and teif, but in terms of toil and tummy, it's a different thing altogether. It's a Saying that I'm, I'm going to have a higher standard of Kashrus is saying I want to have a higher standard of tahre. Not a higher standard of restrictiveness, not a higher standard of, uh, you know, small-mindedness, that I don't want to allow anything into my life. But rather, a yid wants to be tahir. And the halachas of kashtis, which are in last week's parsha, and also this week and next week, the various different halachas, talk about this dimension. That a yid is told, this is tahir and this is tummy. And though you don't feel tahir and tummy, you feel good and bad, you don't feel tahir and tummy, still a yid is instructed, be tahir and don't be tummy, because Hashem has a higher expectation of yidin. But in any event, um, so there you have it. Let's talk a little bit about Pesach. Um, the first thing that we have to say about Pesach, which is the most important thing that needs to be said about Pesach, and candidly, the most obvious thing about Pesach, but sometimes the most obvious thing escapes people, is that when we sit down to the Pesach Seder, and we tell a story with Tzir's Mitzrayim that happened thousands of years ago, like it says in the Haggadah, like it says in the Psukim, like it says in the Chazal, and we're referring to an event that happened a long time ago. Our sitting by the Pesach Seder is not the commemoration of that event. Or I should say, it's not only. It's not enough to sit by the Pesach Seder, and hopefully we're awake. We discussed last week about the need to get a nap out of Pesach in the afternoon. Um, but it's not enough to commemorate the events of Yitzhak Mitzrayim as though they occurred a long, long time ago. Rather, it's an obligation on each one. This says in Mishnah, and it says in the Nuzuch of the Beholder, Vader, in every generation, Chaya Vader, the obligation of the Jew is, really says, Atzmeikilu, Yatzmei Mitzrayim, as though he has gone out of Mitzrayim. And the Rambam's Lashon is, Lahare says Atzmei, it's not enough that you see. You, others have to be able to look at you and see that you have gone out of Mitzrayim. And when, after, now, the obligation of sitting at the face of Satan is that we have to experience as though we are going out of Mitzrayim. Fortunately for us, Baruch Hashem, certainly the ones who are younger in this room, never tasted Mitzrayim in, this, in, the, in the bitter sense of the word. So how can we say, we're sitting by the Pesach Seder and we're going out of Mitzrayim, we never tasted Mitzrayim in, in the more basic sense. The Mai says, Azari, I, should, I should add that if a Jew who lives in America thinks he's not Mitzrayim, he's very, he's very good in Mitzrayim. That's a very profound Mitzrayim. You know, that's the Golos of Ashidas. Where you sit in Golos and you forget that this is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, we've spoken about this at length many times. This idea that the fact that Mashiach hasn't come in over 1900 years doesn't make Golos one more drop natural. A yid is a gula person. Like the Russian, the, 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 you know, the expression that's used that a ben yachid belongs to a a prince. The only child of a king belongs by his father's table. The fact that he hasn't sat at his father's table for, for 1,932 years, almost, is not, doesn't make it any more natural. It doesn't change the Matthias. The amount of time that elapses doesn't change the fact that a, father, a child belongs by his father's table. That's the way it is. 
So when a person lives and a girl says a and says, it's not so bad, that's terrible. I mean, it's certainly, you know, we'd rather have the problems of the girl says a rather than the problems of the girl says But nevertheless, you'd have to realize that America is also a Mitzrayim. And in a certain way, it's a, it's a deep Mitzrayim, you know, because it's deceptive. It invites you and wants you to melt, as the expression Taki is used by America, and to lose your identity as a Yid. But still, in the, in the most basic sense of the word, we don't know what Mitzrayim is. So it says in Sfarim, and everybody knows this, that the word Mitzrayim, the Hebrew word, Mitzrayim, amongst other things, means a Meitzar. Meitzar, the Hebrew word Meitzar means a fortress, or an imprisonment, an enclosed area. Like it says in the Pasuk, Min HaMeitzar Karasi Meitzar means, it's translated in English, from the deep. I'm not sure exactly why. Meitzar does not mean from the deep. Um, and a Meitzar means from a narrowness, from an inkite, from a, uh, from, a, from a place which is enclosed and suppressing. It's such Min HaMeitzar. And the translation of the word Mitzrayim is that a Yid finds himself in a, in a place which is, which is limiting. And there are two possibilities in as much as Mitzrayim is concerned. The first possibility is that a Mitzrayim is superimposed on a person. There's certain things that somebody else forces on that person to put that person in a Mitzrayim condition. Like we experience physically in Eretz Mitzrayim. Harvard and Chachma, they party, got together with his advisors, and they set up a whole system by which they forced Yidin into a condition, or they manipulated Yidin into a condition of subservience and slavery and Mitzrayim. But then you live in a society where the Goy is not overtly trying to suppress, is not overtly trying to limit the Yiddish expression, the Neshama, the holy expression that was in the Jew, but it's also a Mitzrayim. And sometimes that Mitzrayim is not imposed on us by anybody else, it's a Mitzrayim that we impose on ourselves. It's a lot more fun to impose Mitzrayim on yourself than to have somebody else impose Mitzrayim on you, right? It's a lot more pleasant when you say, listen, I'm a small person, I can't do anything more in terms of Avedis Hashem than have a goy say, you're not allowed to do this. But you know what? It's arguably more difficult to exit, to go out of a Mitzrayim which is self-imposed than a Mitzrayim which somebody else imposes upon us. And for obvious reasons, a Mitzrayim which is self-imposed is a mind game that we play with ourselves. We, we genuinely, we legitimately convince ourselves of an inability to go out of a certain restraint. There's a very good story with the Baal Shem Tov. It's a very, it's a classic story. It's a, it's a great Baal Shem Tov story for various reasons. The story is that the Chavraya Kadisha, the Tamidia Baal Shem Tov, the one sitting in the Beis Medrisha was at night. And you understand in the old shtetl, people worked from dawn to dusk and they went to sleep because they didn't have, you know, all the artificial forms of lighting which allowed people to stay up all night. And the cloud people were sleeping. So it was an unusual thing for the night time that there should be a light on in the shtetl. And a balagola, a goy, a coachman, was riding through town and his horse fell into a ditch. What happens when the horse falls into a ditch? The wagon falls right on top of the horse. And if you don't pull the wagon out, the horse is going to die and break its bones, suffocate, whatever. And it's, it's very unpleasant. And Balagola, whatever, rich people, they didn't have money in reserve to buy a new horse. So it was a very serious thing. So this guy comes running into the Bashemtev's base medrish. It was the only place he saw a light. And he says, quick, quick, you have to help me. My horse fell into a ditch and the wagon fell on top of the horse. So they say, we're busy and we can't do it. So he went away. And he went looking for somebody else to help him. And he couldn't find anybody. They were almost sleeping. So he comes back into the base medrish. And he says, you must come and help me. There's nobody else who can help me. My horse is going to die. I'm not going to have what to eat. So the Chavrai Kedisha deliberated. They thought about it. And they told him, we can't. 
we can't, they said in Russian, <laughs> we can't, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the Russian, but they can't. So this guy said to them, you can, you don't want. Majit, Timechachich. Majit means you, you, you may. That's a little translation of the word. But in Russian, that means you are capable of it. Timechachich, you don't desire to do it. The Bashemta was in the other room, and he heard this guy say, Majit Timechachich. He came running out of his room, and he got all excited, and he said, This is a shlichis mamish. This is a hashkocha protest from the Ebishtad. Where a guy makes a statement like this, and this is something that every Jew needs to hear. How often do we say I can't and we mean I don't want? <laughs> it's not I can't. I'd rather not. I don't want. It's uncomfortable. It's unnatural. It's too difficult. Maybe it's finished. But nobody comes along and says I, I don't want. If it's a good thing, why don't you want? I can't. So this guy says to them, Majid, you certainly can't. In the you don't want. You know, in previous classes we discussed the difference between the word need and the word want. Remember? People have needs. The needs of a person are constant. And the Ebishta says that a person has to be given his needs. Wants are another story. Wants are excessive and wants can sometimes be self-destructive in a, you know, in a real way and so on and so forth. But the same is true in the reverse. There's what I can't do and what I don't want to do. And just like we have a tendency to confuse what I need with what I want. In other words, many things that I don't need, I say I need. So many things that I'm capable of, instead of saying I don't want to do it, we say I can't do it. <laughs> Children are honest. I shouldn't say children are honest in this, this particular respect. When we look at children, we're capable of being honest. When our child says, I don't, I can't. So what does the mother say to the child? Yes, you can, you don't want to. The point is, we're just as guilty or more guilty than our children are of the same ills. We oftentimes say, I can't, when the truth of the matter is, I want. The difference is, the ch- child can still be reprimanded. The child is still, is still, you know, how can I say it? You know, let's compromise that if you say to a child, you're not saying the truth, you can and you don't want, the child hears it, and perhaps he actually does something about it, but the child didn't tell it. Tell an adult who says, I can't. No, you can, you don't want. So that's it, you've made an enemy for a hundred years. <laughs> as long as that person's memory lasts, when it comes to these things, we somehow have wonderful, wonderful memories. So the difference between children and, and adults is not necessarily in the rights and the wrongs, it's in, it's in the tolerance. We from but whatever the case is, that's the Tai Chitzias Mitzrayim. Yitzias Mitzrayim means to defy our own self-imposed Mitzrayim. We're not speaking about jumping off, you know, doing things that we talk can't. But the things that we say we can't. But in our moments of truth, we know it's not that we can't, we don't want to. And, you know, part of it is that we're stuck in a certain lifestyle, we're stuck in a certain way. When it comes, Pesach, the obligation is that when it comes to the Pesach, say that we have to take ourselves out of the Mitzrayim. We have to find the Mitzrayim, and the Mitzrayim usually is a Mitzrayim which we impose on ourselves, and we must carry ourselves out of Mitzrayim. We must use the Koyach that comes from the Leila Seyded and help ourselves go out of one of those things that we've just decided we cannot do and force ourselves to do it. Um, again, I'll give you an illustration. The nature of society is that 
people don't see their own faults. So when you talk about other people, things are crystallized, they're clear. You know, the good and bad of other people is black and white. The good and bad when it comes to ourselves is more vague. So when you use an example from, from other people, the reason you use them as an example is not Hashem because we're perfect, but because when you see how clear this phenomena of I can't and I want is convoluted, is confused in another society, it helps us find in our own lives that line. There's a, it's, it's a story that I, I know about. This is a, it's a real thing. I'm not telling you there's no, a lot of Jews who are very American, don't live in Borough Park, live in other places in New York. And in America, there's all kinds of laws. For example, one of the laws which is written into the American Ten Commandments, ideally you shouldn't have more than one child. But more than two children is a cardinal sin, punished. It's not allowed. It's not allowed. There's pro- the, the official excuse is that there's problems, that there's problems with with overpopulation. That's the official excuse. But there are other explanations for it as well. So there's a woman whose daughter became a Balas Truva and she had so many children and this woman was young enough, a daughter, whatever, a stepdaughter was young enough to have more children. And she had such a good time with her, it was actually her husband's grandchildren. So the girl finally says to her, have another child. And the response was, I can't. I can't. What's this? You can't. It's not true. Now, the reason I'm using this example is because in that world you see clearly, when we look at that world, we see clearly the confusion between I can't and, and I don't want to. But it exists in our life. And each one of us, in our own little way, needs to identify the difference between I can't and I don't want. And the I don't want, that's our Mitzrayim. I don't want as a self-imposed Mitzrayim. And by the way I say that there needs to be an exodus, needs to be a Yetzirah Mitzrayim. And I must add, this is also a very important point. And that's this. It's not only that the Pesach said there is the time to go out of Mitzrayim. We need to say, you know, everything in Yiddishkeit is, fit, is put into a calendar. There's a time to erase Amalek, and there's a time to receive the Torah, and there's a time to crown Hashem as a king, and there's a time which is, you know, Kate's it's time for children, and there's a time to go out of Mitzrayim. In other words, now you have to do this ritual. It's not only that, that's a half a story. And the other half a story, this is a very important part of the half, is that on Pesach Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim. We need to say, just like when Yidin left the sign the first time, Hashem did unbelievable races and mercies and many wonders and many miracles, and He schlepped us out of Eretz Mitzrayim into a place of freedom. And, but it wasn't only the Isis and Mason. This is a very important detail that should be pointed out when it comes to Pesach. Hashem did many miracles. And He crushed the Mitzrayim. He defeated the Mitzrayim, right? But that's only a half a job. Why? Because all of the, the, the miracles, all the makis that Hashem Yisbarah brought on the Mitzrayim, all they did was remove the enemy. It took away the Mitzrayim from without. The Goy who was interfering with Yidin, Zavayi Hashem, it's already removed. There's another problem, an Eidah-letter problem, more subtle but also serious problem, and that is, Yidin were culturally slaves to Mitzrayim. Yidin had lived in Mitzrayim so long, had become so acclimated to that lifestyle, to that way of thinking, that there's not a Mitzrayim in the world, a Jew is in Mitzrayim. 
He committed a thousand miles from Mitzrayim, but the mentality of the Jew was a Mitzrayim orientation, a Mitzrayim mentality. And the proof of it is, as we've spoken so many times, that we see that Klai Yisrael constantly doesn't trust. They don't trust. Hashem does one miracle, and the next day they forget, and they're complaining again. Hashem does a second miracle, the next day they forget, and they go, why? Because the, the influence of Mitzrayim and Klai Yisrael was this disbelief in, in the miracles. Miracles were, were not accepted as part of the culture of Mitzrayim. And consequently, Yid saw a miracle. The minute into the miracle, he didn't believe miracles could happen. And he had to constantly be reminded. And yesterday's miracle wasn't enough for today. He's complaining again. Hashem has do nochanes. And he's complaining all over again. So we see that the influence of Mitzrayim and Yidin was not only a physical shibud, it was a psychological, it was an emotional, it was a spiritual shibud. And therefore it's explained that Yetzirah's Mitzrayim was not only removing the Goyim, it was spiritually taking Yidin out of Mitzrayim. Like it says in the Siddur, Nigla Hashem, Hashem revealed Himself. The purpose for Hashem revealing Himself in the morning of Pesach, Tazrod Nisn in the morning, take us out of Mitzrayim was not to punish the Egyptians again, was not to get the obstacle out of the way, but to give a yid faith Pashat, to take away the Mitzrayim the inner Mitzrayim, the personal Mitzrayim that we all unfortunately were subject to. So we sit by our Pesach Seder this year and we say that there's a Yetzirah Mitzrayim half of that Yetzirah Mitzrayim is that we need to identify our own Mitzrayim which the way we're categorizing it is, draw the real line, not the comfortable line, but the real line between I can't and I don't want to, and push the I don't want to just a little bit, some of the I don't want to should become I want, or I will, um, but that's our half of it. What we need to understand very importantly is the reason this is the time for us to take ourselves out of Mitzrayim because Parshat Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim. Meaning to say, when we sit by the Pesach Seder, Hashem brings a certain koyach, a certain holiness into the world that gives us a special assistance, a special ability to help ourselves to go out of our limitations which we simply don't have at another time of the year. If you remember, we spoke about this at Purim. Purim happens. On Purim, that special love that Hashem has to call Yisrael, that's called Gerdel, re-emerges. And same is true Pesach. Pesach, we don't only take ourselves out of Mitzrayim, Hashem Yisbarach takes us out of Mitzrayim. And that's why it's important, to take advantage of this time. When it comes, we sit by Zed, we sit by the Pesach Seder, and like I said, we're all awake, <laughs> and we're all rested, and everything is the way it's supposed to be, with Nebuch himself, Begeshem, Beruach. We take ourselves, we identify a Mitzrayim and we try to exit from it. And the reason this is the time because Hashem helps us push it. But we can accomplish by the Leila Seder, we literally cannot accomplish it another time. And the reason we can accomplish the Leila Seder is not because we're greater by the Pesach Seder, but because Hashem is is greater by the Pesach Seder. His availability in this aspect of Gu'ula is is more available than at another time and He helps us. Or He literally takes us out of our own Mitzrayim and Gvulim. But in any event, that's really what Pesach is really about. In other words, Pesach happens to us and not it happened a long time ago and we're telling the story. I think I tell, I'm sure I told you the story. The, the first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, Rebbe Shnei Zalman, uh, was himself about clear. He used to read the tale himself. And um, his Kriya Satayda was something special. Besides for all the Kavanas, it was extremely Meduyak. He, he learned perfectly. And he would read over a Pasuk even if he made a mistake in Tirap. Not only if he made a mistake in Diktuk. 
Anyways, after he passed away, he passed away in Tevis. So naturally, that other, that put him, he didn't read the Megillah. So for the first time in his life, the Alter Rebbe's son, the middle Rebbe, Rebbe Dov Ben, heard somebody else read the Megillah sister. So after this person finishes reading the Megillah, he goes up to the Balkhiyah, the one who read the Megillah, and he gives him a wonderful thank you. Such a wonderful story. I never heard such a beautiful story, such an interesting drama. And listen, the Megillah Sester is a good story, a great political power play. It's got all the right components, right? And it's, it's a great story. So this Yid is looking at the Rebbe and says, Rebbe, you certainly heard the story last year and you heard the story the year before. He says, well, my father, so he responds, when my father read the Megillah, I heard it different. <laughs> and the point, of course, is when we sit by the Pesach Seder, if we suffice with saying, a long time ago, our ancestors went out of Mitzrayim, it's a shame Maise. It's a mitzvah to say to tell the story of Pesach. Don't misunderstand. But the deeper dimension, the, the, you know, the Avodah Hashem dimension of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim, like it says in the Siddur, is Lahare says, Atzme, we have to demonstrate in our own person that we have personally gone out of Mitzrayim. And not only the Mitzrayim that was thousands of years ago, but the Mitzrayim that we personally impose on ourselves, each one in our own, in our own existence, in our own life, in our own condition. As they say in Yeshiva, V'chulu V'dal. Um, which means etc. V'dal means, I'm sure you understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, now, one more thought that I want to say, and that is that we make a Pesach a very, very big deal out of the Kindalach. Bechlal, Yidin, always make a very big deal out of Kindalach because there is the understanding that the Yidin exists because of Chinuch. I mean, the, the thing that Torah is distinct to Ahadul from other doses is the idea of, of Chinuch, of giving it to the next generation, like we have in the story of Purim, and like we have in the, all the other significant events in, in the history of Kal Yisrael, was the inclusion of the children. But the place in the Torah, the place in the Torah where in Chumash, in Torah more than any other place where there's an emphasis on including the children, is by the Pesach Seder. There's a special mitzvah, it's a mitzvah, Pashat. You have to tell your children the story of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim. And of course, here also is the same idea. This is not so simple. You know, it's one thing to tell the story of Dom and Sadeya and Kinim and Orev and David and Shechim as it happened then. And you know, the, the Mitzrayim and the Avedas Perach, the way it says in all the Midrashim, the events as they happened. It's a different thing to tell your child a a living story that the child should appreciate that this is not something that happened once upon a time. It's something that's happening and not to anybody else. It's happening to himself. And I, the child, have to go with the Pesach Seder thinking, I have to go out of my own personal Mitzrayim. So my own personals, I don't want to. And, and to be honest about the difference between the I don't want and I can't. And that's it's a mitzvah pasha, to, to sit with the kinderach and tell them the story of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim. And as you probably know, the, the whole design of the Pesach Seder was constructed The construct of the Seder is such that you do a lot of strange things, unusual things. Like it says the Lushan, you wash your hands, you eat a little piece of kapas, and you're really taking away the table. 
in the olden times, we can't relate to these Lashenas because we, we eat differently, but in the times of the Shas, when people ate, each person had a little table for himself. They ate together. They were Masudan. They ate together. But each one had a little tish. And they say there was that they would bring the table for eating after Kiddush. And before they bench, they would remove the table. They would take away the table and then they would bench. So the child says, we washed. We had little vegetables. And Masalka and Akadah Mamat says, you're taking away the table. We didn't eat yet. And we're already going to bench. And, and a number of other things. The Matbilin, we table in, in, you know, in Chareses and in Saltwater. The reason for all of these Dvarim Ishunim, these interesting Menhagim, is Poshet, we want to get the child to ask a question. And like I told you last year, and I, I think about this all the time. There's a problem with the Seder. The child knows what's going to happen by the Seder better than his parents does. He learns about it for a month, at least. Probably from before Purim, they're learning about Pesach. So he knows all the Dvarim Mishun that's supposed to happen by the Pesach Seder. So if you want to get the child to ask a question, maybe you should skip Karpas. Because then the child will say, wait a minute, now it's supposed to be Karpas. <laughs> it ceases to be a Dvar, which is uh, strange. The child has what he's going to ask. He knows the answer already. He says the Manishtana and he already knows with the Yiddish translation what Avodim Ayinu means in the Frek Dekashis. Okay, it's a good question. And again, we'll have to figure out how to resolve that dilemma. But still, I mean, you know what it is that kids come to Pesach Seder and we all see this. They're excited. Children are so alive. I mean, one of the greatest frustrations, I don't want to be too personal here, but you come up from Shul and you, you, it takes time to start to say this. There's so much to do, even after all the preparation of Yom Tov. And the kids have no patience, let's start now. And when they were in Chedid and they learned the Kaddish, the translation of Kaddish is that you have to make Kiddish right away so the children shouldn't fall asleep and your, your child is tugging at your apron and saying, Ooh, what are you roasting this day now? You should have roasted it earlier. Whatever it is that the child is preoccupied with because they, that chayis, that chayis the children have, even if they don't have the particular question, it's the mere fact that we're doing something different and exciting. We don't do it another day, beginning first that they can get to stay up late um, and drink four whole cups of grape juice. <laughs> And we look at them and we can't believe it. <laughs> You're really enjoying that, huh? Um, um, that itself, that excitement, the difference from the everyday is what sparks the children's curiosity. Now, Pashat Balabatish, a very simple level. It's not enough to tell the child a story. You want the child to ask and your story should be an answer. No, you don't have to be a great scout to understand this. There's a reason why so many things in life, and in Torah especially, are constructed the derech shaylo tshuva. They're written in the form of a question and an answer. You know, there's gansen esforim. Different kinds of esforim. Musa esforim, Kabbalah esforim. That the whole sefer was written by one mechaber. But he wrote the sefer as a narrative. You know, the sefer akuzri is an example of that. There's a whole clad whether the Sefer Akuzri is real or imaginary. It was written by Rabbi Yudha Levi. Rabbi Levi lived for sure hundreds of years after the times of the Kuzarim. In other words, Rabbi Levi wasn't there. If this story happened, Rabbi Levi wasn't the witness to it. He had a Messiah and he recorded it. And the Yeshemim, the story never happened. Not that the Kuzim were not Magayar, but that this debate, this Vikuach, which is the Sefer Akuzri, never happened. But still, the Kuzri is written this way. And if you've ever seen the inside of the Sefer Akuzri, it's Omer Achavir. Omer Achavir means the Yid. And then you have the, there's a Nazri, and there's a Muslimani, and then there's the Melech. And there's this whole 
dialogue that takes place rather than a monologue. And it's, it just has a certain appeal. When there's a, when there's a give and take, there's a greater attentiveness. It's just Teva Ibn Adam. When you ask a question and give an answer, the person who hears the answer understands it better than if you have offered the information. Any person who is a teacher knows this from experience. When you offer information to your students, even if it's well prepared and properly thought out and presented in an organized way, there's a conception, a possibility that children don't pay attention. But if you ask the children the question and you, and you, you, know, and you bother them, and this one has an answer and that one has an answer, and you reject each one of their answers, when you give your answer, they're listening. And it, like I said, it's, it's, there are svarim that are written in this style. You have sha'altiel and mitartiel. There are some svarim that are written in this style of shayla tshuva because it, it attracts. You, you, you pay better attention. You hear better. You listen better. You understand better. And that's the contra- construct of the Pesach Seder that the child says manishtana. He asks questions and you answer him. Now, if the child doesn't ask, right, then the Haggadah is called a she'eni de'elishl. So absolutely, but it's it's desirable. You want when we were kids. This is one of the great. I'm not a kid anymore, so I regret not taking advantage of it. How many questions that I asked that I was told that I'd get the answer by the Pesach Seder, and I never got around to asking any of those questions because I forgot. Tainus Yerim Kenef Neshavim. Who told me to forget? But in my childhood, my malamid, like Mazogim, his mom was mom. You asked this question by the Pesach Seder. I don't know why he said that. He didn't know the answer, or the question was ridiculous, or was out of place. But the point is, the Pesach Seder is designed by Derek Shailo Tshuva. A question and an answer. The whole idea is that the children should be tuned in. And of course, we don't just speak to the, to the child that everybody loves, the Ben Chacham, the child that's so wonderful and so sophisticated and so cooperative and so involved. You speak to the Ben Rasha and you speak to the Ben Tom and you speak to the Shenadiel Lishel. And it's interesting, and I'm sure everybody's heard the Roshas on this, that the Rasha comes right after the Chacham. The Rasha is the worst of the four. And the Chacham is the best of the four. And in between is the Tom and the Shenadiel Lishel. And still you put the Rasha next to the Chacham. But there's all kinds of reasons. And a very simple reason is, for now Rasha can be not Chacham. A Rosh can become a Chocham. A Tom is going to remain a Tom. Call you Mechayev. And a Shenya de Elishal is lighter. A Shenya de Elishal. So we all have different kinds of children. And the Torah says you have to speak to all of them. And you know, the Rebbe adds in, in, in his discussions, the Ben Chamishi. It's important to point it out. There is a fifth son. In addition to the Chocham and the Rosh and the Tom and the Shenya de Elishal, there's the child that Bebach doesn't come to the Seder altogether. The four children sit in Bamtish. And the Ben Chamishi doesn't even know there's a Seder. So he doesn't even appear. And you have to, for the Ben Chamishi, you have to go out and you have to find him in the street, you have to schlep him and you have to make him a Pesach Seder. And that's the real regard to the the real Ap Pesachle. But in any event, we speak to all of the children. And the Pesach Seder is designed around the children. And if I may add a, 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 he says a, a commentary, in addition to the Pshutesh I'm making, of course, it's because Pesach were all children. As I told you so many times, that Leida Sam Yisrael, the birth of the Jewish nation, takes place every Pesach. It's a Pesach in Yechesko, that the, the birth of Am Yisrael is Pesach. And when we're born, we're still children. When we get to Shfuris, we're Gesa Chachamim. And that's why we eat in the Beisalotet to the Makiv Chomets. I once spoke about this at length. But Pesach were all little Kindalach. And the Yesod, when it comes to the way we raise children, is the Yesodis of Amunah. Adults,
adults learn, adults have to understand. Children's foundation is a healthy salad amuna. And if the amuna is healthy, so then when the child grows up and becomes a chacham, and he starts to learn, he starts to ask questions, his amuna is not compromised. If a child has a question and doesn't get an answer, what happens? What happens? There's two possibilities. One possibility is the child doesn't have an answer. The child says to himself, okay, so I don't have an answer. Or maybe even my father doesn't have an answer. Or maybe even my malama doesn't have an answer. But this is the English, this is There is an answer and I don't know it. But another time, another kind of child asks a question and he doesn't get an answer. He says, if you're not going to answer the question, then why should I do it? The question is the same. Why is the world Michla de Mehemenusa? It's called Michla, the bread of the Muna. And it's literally so. When you eat matzah, you're eating faith. And there's Gitsu and Amuna. There's Gitsu, it adds an Amuna. You know, Yidin in times of great difficulty. Yidin when there is Mamish Bekuch, Nefashis Mamish, to be a Yid and to survive Bechlau, we need it more than another mitzvah in matzahs. There were Yidin who undertook as their life project in the dark Soviet Russia. Matzah. Of all mitzvahs, matzah. Why not Shabbos? And one of the reasons is because matzah is a Muna. And in a society where keeping Yiddishkeit is so difficult, if the Amunah is preserved, there's an opportunity at the Dina, at Svet and Dad. There'll be a Mochar, like it says in the Chumash. And the child will be able to key a Sholcha that will come to the Pesach, say, because as you said, there's a Munah. And this is one of the, like I said, a commentary, not the Pshut Shabbiki, but another insight into why we make such a big deal out of children. Because by the Pesach, they were all supposed to be children. And the idea of a child is that the child approaches it with a simplicity, with an Amunah Pshutah. So the later, when we get wise and smart, and we receive the Torah, and we learn the Torah, and we grace the Tamil Chachamim, Mevinim, the Reinim, the Reinim, the Reinim, the Chachamim, the Reinim, the Reinim, the um, the foundation of Amunah is rock solid. And in conclusion, I'll just say this, that it says, we have two Pesach Seders. Yeah? In Eretz Yisrael, they only have one Pesach Seder. But it says in, in Kabbalah, that, in effect, that in Eretz Yisrael, that they're missing something. Why? Because the matzah we eat the first night of Pesach is called Mechodim Himenusa, bread of Amunah, and the matzah that we eat the second night of Pesach is called Michlo da Asvosa. Asvosa means refua, medicine, healing. And this is true that matzah is a refua. It's a bavusta zachta to its adikim. When a person was not well, they would give them a little piece of matzah, or to be more specific, a little piece of their matzah. Because matzah, it says in Torah, has a koyach of refua. And in Avedis Hashem, refua means tshuva. The, 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 the theory, the concept of it, a fool is that something is broken and you have to fix it. It's the same idea of Chua. So you come to the first night of Pesach, you're just born, you eat matzah and amunah. 24 hours later, you already have something to do Chua for. That's a, that's a joke. But the point is that even a Yid who's in a Madrege where he's newborn and he's a tzaddik also has to do Chua. So the first night of Pesach is an Indian of amunah, the second night of Pesach is an Indian of Chua. So, first of all, this is Yidin, and the Koyach of Yidin is very great. So if a taka yid needs a refuah shleima, they should have taka refuah shleima matam aser et And I'm going to mention specifically, Chaim Yehuda Kalm Ben Rachel should have a refuah shleima kreva. But take all those who need a refuah and that they know they need a refuah, that they don't know they need a refuah. And in the oif and the vad is the vare. And the wicked is, it should be a refuah to the greatest machlavo, pasha the machlav the golas. Right? The Gemara says that the nis nigel of nis nasidim nigoyal, that Mashiach also comes now the season. The Shchaydish Nisn is already Pesach, it's already time for the Geula. Anyway, so Makoshin Afelech on Pesach, Matak Afelech on Pesach, Megizon, Tunachas, Nalagut Azachan, and Mashiach now. Or is that Alagizon?